Hi, and welcome to the Unplugged Debate. On this podcast, we delve into the ideas surrounding human interaction with both nature and technology, talking to people about their time in the outdoors, starting from when they were younger all the way through to present day, developing a picture on who and what motivates them to be outside and why they do the things they do in the outdoors, crossing over into talking about their technology usage and how that's changed throughout their life, and speaking to them about the different types of technology they use on a day-to-day basis, from their mobile phones to their running shoes. Once we've developed a good picture of them, we incorporate that into how they think technology has changed their outlook on life and their time in the outdoors. And finishing with how they think technological development has changed society on a wider scale. So hello and welcome. So on today's episode, we have Dan Rose. Dan Rose uh, and I were at college together at Oakland's College in St. Albans. He studied sport and exercise science whilst he was there and then progressed on to Bedfordshire University doing sports therapy and rehabilitation. Um, he decided that that wasn't, uh, wasn't him. Um, he's uh, very much an outdoor person and it was too much indoors. So he went into the cycling industry uh, as a mechanic, if I was correct. Yeah. 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 And uh, and you were working at an outdoor centre or an outdoor activity centre whilst you were doing that as well. Yeah, alongside it for a private company, yeah. Uh, cool. Uh, Dan is also a keen walker and climber uh, and likes to push himself into a bit of mountaineering um, when time allows him to go and do that sort of thing. Uh, you said you were fascinated by mountain rescue, which I assume led you into being coming the chairman of the Low, uh, Midshear Lowland Rescue Search and Rescue Team. I say Lowland because because he lives he lives down south. So <laughs> <laughs> um, you also are working for Hertfordshire Scouts, um, and you're one of three lead instructors covering four main sites, um, and that just handles day day to day operation and activities. Uh, he also is aspirational to become more of a mountaineer uh, and is looking to push himself to work with groups with larger ambitions in the mountains. So hi Dan, how are you? Yeah, I'm not bad, how are you? Yeah, good man. Um, as I say, thanks for doing the podcast and we'll just dive straight into it really because that's quite a um, quite a spread of outdoor activities that you've uh, put put in there. So what sort of things actually got you into doing uh, stuff in the outdoors? Who was it and, and where did it start? Uh, from a kid, I just never liked being indoors, to be honest. Um, I would be probably one of those kids that played in the fields rather than uh, sitting at a computer. Um, but to be honest with you, there wasn't really anyone specific um other than maybe some friends and uh sort of friends of friends and we just kind of went climbing one day and that's just how it happened really um it became really interesting and i liked to kind of expand on it and carry on so you when when was when was that you said you said it was obviously friends that took you climbing when what what age so it's probably uh early teenage years probably sort of 13 I suppose um we, we started climbing um just for a bit of fun and carried on from there okay cool I mean it, it's, it's always interesting because that's sort of when you start taking on things and that was under your own volition that wasn't anything to do with your parents or anything like that you started climbing because it was you and your friends that wanted to go and do something yeah yeah exactly that okay. uh, I'm the polar opposite of my parents <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so what when you were younger, obviously, did you do any sport? Because I remember you were doing the football academy at Oaklands, weren't you? Yeah, so I played a, a lot of football um, as a kid, probably from, well, competitively from, from the age of 10 up um, through to about 
1920, I suppose, a little bit less after that, um, due to various injuries and my body couldn't take it anymore. Honestly. <laughs> injuries? What injuries? How can you get injured in football? I broke my leg, didn't I? <laughs> oh, yeah, you did. Yeah, I forgot. <laughs> um, and so who, who pushed you into that then? Or, or was that something you wanted to do as well? That was kind of kind of me. Uh, my brother was interested in football as well. Um, so I probably kind of copied him a little bit and then decided I enjoyed it, I suppose. Okay. All right. Well, um, so you started talking about the, the climbing and stuff. Um, when, when did the hill walking come into it? So I've probably always done a little bit of hill walking. Um, Dad, when he was younger, did quite a lot. Um, did things like the Pennine Way and things like that. Um, we went away a little bit as I was sort of kind of growing up. Um, did a lot of camping more than anything, um, just because he couldn't necessarily keep up. <laughs> so he wouldn't always take us out in the in the mountains, but he would try, which was good fun. Yeah. So you you said your dad was a keen hill walker. What, what did he what sort of stuff did he do and you said the Pennine Wayne and yeah so he did quite a few of the, the the longer stuff in the UK so Pennine Way um I think Patriots Wallpath the coast to coast things like that so um kind of all those those kind of big ones there um but yeah nothing too too extreme but the, the longest and shortest side of things hmm. okay and and so and he, he would take you along on those things so um no, that was all well before I was uh, old enough to do it. So uh -huh. <laughs> um, it was kind of a catching up on lost time, I suppose, when I got a bit older. Okay. And you, you said that you like to do mountaineering stuff, and I suppose you could say that that kind of crosses between the climbing and, and walking um, aspects of, of, of that. When, when did the love of the mountaineering stuff start coming in? Um, well, I've always loved uh, the mountains themselves because they just feel very different, um, very peaceful, I suppose, but also very um, scary is the wrong word, but they, they, you, they can look quite menacing uh, yeah. in the right weather. But um, and then the minute I started sort of doing some summer, summer hill walking and whatnot, I decided actually I want to push it into the winter stuff and winter stuff obviously takes that, that menacing bit and, and ups it slightly. Um, what could be a small mistake in the summer could be a massive mistake in winter and it was just kind of a slowly experimenting with it starting low level kind of the brecker beacons and slowly moving towards um north wales the lake district scotland that sort of thing um mm. and and even now i don't get out as much as i want to but i say there's been plans for many years to do things and they don't always work out um i, I mean plans rarely ever do yeah, so, unfortunately. Yeah, was it uh, the the famous the famous line? Um, Life is what happens to you while you're off busy making plans. Yeah. So, you also said that you were um, sort of into back to basics and, and bushcraft. That was the company that you were working for whilst you were working in the cycling industry. So, um, what what sort of got you into that? I think that was just circumstance. Um, it wasn't something I'd ever really done before um, working for that company, um, but it was something that when I when I started, I, I picked up quite quickly and quite enjoyed. Um, and the idea of being able to quite literally um, rub some sticks together through bow drill and things like that to, to make make fire or chip some stones together was quite interesting. Um, and to be fair, kids love it. They're, they're fascinated. They can't understand it. Uh, have you got have you got some funny stories for us uh what would you consider funny i mean <laughs> there's there's all kinds of things like you get kids to mix up a big muddy bucket of water uh, for example you get them to filter it through a pair of jeans um into a, a metal pot you boil it up and you, you drink it for them and it looks disgusting it tastes disgusting but it's fairly safe by the time you've filtered it and you boiled it and whatnot um, but the kids don't understand it. 
fact that they're filtering out all the particulates and then killing off the bacteria. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, that that sort of thing, um, that certainly the forest school side of things, bushcraft and, and back to basics, um, there's, there's huge amounts of research to suggest that it actually really helps uh, with children's social skills, maths, English and science uh, at school. So, you know, it's always it's always interesting to see their blank faces go, oh, is that what really happens? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah definitely. So I mean, yeah, it can it's, it can be a very rewarding thing uh, to uh, impart that sort of knowledge, I guess. Um, and then, so you know, that sort of your teenage years, you were, you started climbing, you were doing football um, all the way up until sort of uni, and then you went and started working for a, a bike mechanics in in your late teens and early 20s and and then moving into more uh, activity stuff um into i assume your, your mid to late 20s yes um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just to clarify dan and i are, are the same age so uh, um <laughs> not making him sound like a really old person um when did you actually um you said you had a, a fascination for Mountain Rescue, and, and now you're chairman of Midshear uh, Search and Rescue. When when did that happen? So I was fascinated from basically the ever since I've enjoyed the mountains, I've always been fascinated by by mountain rescue. Um, and I always assumed as a kid that you know the, the job people got paid to do it, that sort of thing. Um, you grow up a little bit, you find out the volunteers, and suddenly go. Oh, okay, that's that's a bit different. That's um, another way to spend your spend your afternoon. Um, yeah. And I suppose it was probably around about kind of eighteen. I decided, oh, you know, if I ever live anywhere near, I'll I'll, I'll try it and see if I can get on a team. Um, then obviously uni happened. I went to uni for a few years, um, and then as soon as I finished uni, I um, decided it was time to to step up and do something. So. I think I was about 21, probably 22 by the time I actually um, joined Mitchell's, um, which cover Oxford and Bedfordshire. So we are, as you said earlier, Lowland. Um, and we, we come under Lowland Rescue, the national body basically sits alongside Mountain Rescue. Um, and yeah, I suppose I was kicking around there for a year until I joined the committee um, in one role. And about a year later, uh, I was asked if I would step up um, and I've been there ever since. So um, it's, it's been a, an interesting challenge, but it's, it's good fun to meet some great people. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's quite a unique setting. And as you know, you said you're, you're very proud of your volunteer role and supporting the police and, and you know, the local resilient forums alike. Um, I mean, what sort of things do you deal with? when you're out doing the search and rescue? So in reality, our highest and second highest um, call outs are for people with dementia. Um, who don't know they're missing. Uh, or people that are classed as despondent or suicidal. And they've generally, they've gone missing and don't want to be found. Um, so you're not always welcomed when you do come across someone, but generally if you do come across someone, it, it's very rewarding, um, but it's a, it, we could be called out at any time, uh, day or night across anywhere in the in the two counties. Some of which, for anyone that's aware of Parks and Bedfordshire, can be quite quite steep and quite vast, and some of it can be quite quite urban. So it's, it's a very strange kind of area to to cover. It, it, I mean, you know, we we both grew up around there. And... So it's quite strange to think because obviously my my perception of it uh, is that it's it's sort of you're only ever called out to the hills where like ambulance or police can't actually get to you then you have specialist skills to to get people off but it's it really interesting to talk to you about it and and find out a bit more really to um, know that it's not just um, for the hills and, and things like that you still actually get into urban areas and, and look for people that way um i mean it's fascinating um to, to think 
think, yeah. I mean, I haven't spoken to Dan properly in years, so to, to, it's, it's basically just a, a good catch up for us. So, <laughs> um, so I mean, that, that, that's fantastic. So the, the aspirations of uh, doing more mountain stuff, uh, you were saying in the pre-record pre chat um, that you had booked Sort of your mountain leader and several other national government body awards um and you've been put back because of covid um what's what's the plan with that one like going forward uh well <laughs> i suppose it's to, to get some stuff rebooked as soon as i can um but a lot of focus is currently on trying to reopen centers that we've got for for the kids so uh, to get them back out and doing stuff so it's, it's quite hard now to plan when i'm going to fit those in but we're looking like we might have a, a little bit of a quiet spell in august so i might try and, and get something booked in, in august and, and see what i can do um some are obviously easier than others the the ml training um is like a five six day training course so uh that's always a week off work away from what i've got to do which probably puts me a week behind by the time i'm back <laughs> But yeah, I think it's just a case of speaking to various assessors, various training bodies, and finding out when I can do what. Hmm. Uh, 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 what, I, what I'm trying to say, uh, what, what's the what's the end goal? Is you said that you want to work for uh, with groups and larger ambitions. Does that mean like you're looking to become a mountaineering guide and take people to the Alps, or you know that sort of thing? Ultimately, um, that would be, I think, the, the, the dream um, would be to, to guide groups, um, whether it be in the UK, whether it be Europe, wherever it ends up, um, or whether it's just a mix of the whole lot. Um, but it's just a case of, as I'm sure you're aware, you, you get as much qualification as you can to then build yourself a name and, and go from there. Indeed. I mean, with the... Uh... We're talking about the uh, ml and, and that's your mountain leader training is that for the summer summer award or is that for the winter award so that would be the the summer uh the winter would obviously have to come after that um because you have to qualify the summer before you can do the winter and, and, and with with that um obviously i i guess from the way you're talking that you would go straight for the the, the winter ml as well um i would intend to yeah yeah, with with the with the mountaineering stuff, would you look to they don't call it um MIC and MIA anymore, do they? Um but would you look to go further than that? Uh, in time if I can. Um if time, money and ability allows, I suppose. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean really, really interesting uh background in in the outdoors, you know, and you're a you're a person that doesn't like to be indoors and um, you've clearly stated that um yeah i mean as as a as a lead uh instructor and you're sort of saying that you're reopening there is there is a bit more um sort of desk work with that i assume yeah as a little um in regards to planning the staff um planning how we're gonna safety run things um safety checks of equipment that kind of thing so there's an awful lot of of the that kind of stuff behind it as well but obviously it's all very important stuff that has to get done um because if you don't prepare it you're gonna do it wrong yeah that's true um well i mean great background in in, in the outdoors so we'll move on uh, a little bit and sort of you know We'll talk about your daily usage of, of technology, um, really. Uh, so we'll start with start with the current stuff that you do, um, and, and what sort of technology are you using on a daily basis? Um, like everyone, um, probably a, a phone, <laughs> because the phone holds pretty much everything I need to know now. Um, in regards to uh, well, mapping or a computer. Um, you can do it all off off your phone uh, these days. That's something that definitely use every day, um, and I, I guess not quite related in the same way. But but vehicles, um, I have access to a lot of vehicles and for a lot of different purposes. But they all get used on an almost daily basis. 
Um, I mean, have you seen a change, um, you know, from when you were younger and all of the equipment that you use these days? Um, you know, you said you use your mobile phone. Obviously, when we were younger, mobile phones weren't so much of a thing. But certainly in our teenage years, we were still walking around with bricks in our in our pockets and stuff. Um, so, I mean, that's that's kind of a given. We've all all seen the technology change. Let's let's hit a bit on the equipment that you actually use for your, your climbing and um, you know we've touched on the cycling industry as well if you if you can. Um, have you seen a, a, a vast change since when you started all the way through to now? Yeah, I suppose the cycling industry is the easiest one to explain. Um, where you have gone now from um, bikes where they were literally a chain, um, some some cogs and a cable to, to move them about. Um, all the way through to now, you've got the e-bikes, you've got the power-assisted um, bikes, but you've also got wireless uh, gear shifting, it's all electronic and, and things like that. And I think some brands now are doing like electronically controlled suspension and, and all sorts of weird and wonderful things that um, are all there to, and designed to make everything easier and quicker. Um, and, and reduce any lag from from anything, I suppose. Um, and that's a that's a big thing there, obviously. Um, and it is just the the embracing of yeah, well, electronics into pretty much everything, I suppose. Um, when you look at at kind of climbing, it's a little bit different. Um, I mean, back when I first started climbing, we used stitch plates. I don't know anyone knows what a stitch plate is, but it's basically a very old traditional belay device. Um, probably about as safe as you like because you know if you're doing it wrong because you suddenly feel a tug on the rope. Um, or, you know, that would have started with like an Italian hitch on a carabiner, that kind of thing as well. Um, all the way through to now, you've got things like the, the, the Grigri Plus. Um, again, very advanced piece of, piece of kit. Um, has both very good advantages and some massive disadvantages, whereas with a stitch plate, you could feel if it was wrong immediately. Um, a Grigri, a lot of people get lazy with it because it bites the rope for you to an extent. Um, people get lazy, they forget how to be laid. Um, so it's, it's still about teaching people how to do it properly um, and that what they've got is just an, an aid to them. It's not going to do the job. Um, but a lot of people sit there and they go, oh, it, it's, it's bit the rope, I'm going to let go because um, I don't need to do anything. But the minute some tension is taken off that rope, it lets go anyway. <laughs> so it does need um, a proper technique taught alongside it. Yeah. And then there's everything else. I mean, kit has gone from being, it is what it is, so to speak, to how light can we make it? Um, and using different materials and things like that to make things as light as possible. Like how small can we make something? Um, but not compromise its ability to do its job. Um, I mean, you got a bunch of like big old steel carabiners, you've now got ultralight aluminium stuff, but you can have three times the amount on your harness without noticing it um, right. and things like that. But everything's basically about being lighter and faster these days, I suppose. Uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think you're right on that. I mean, with, with bikes as well, is they've, um, with the advent of carbon fiber as well um you know they, they tend to be the high-end super high-end stuff but you can get carbon forks on road bikes now and, um and all carbon road bikes as well that sort of really do um make them lighter um but they, if they fail they're a lot harder to fix yeah i mean carbon is a very impressive material it's lighter it's stiffer um, better power output, that kind of thing. But as you say, if you do get a problem, it's often a little bit more terminal. Is it a case of um, in climbing having all of that um, lighter equipment and stuff that makes your life easier when you're when you're out doing that sort of thing, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Um, the lighter it is, the more you can kind of get away with carrying if you had to. Um, whereas previously, you might think, "Oh, what's the, the smallest amount I can take?" Um, to get the job done. Now you might take some spare stuff um, so that you can definitely get the job done. Yeah. So would you say that it, with the uh, advent of 
their ability to do a lot more research and development and use different materials that actually you're safer as a as a I guess we're talking trad climbing here so traditional climbing using gear and stuff um, or quick draws for sport climbing would you say you actually feel safer when you go on a on a crag now rather than back in when you were sort of saying if you had really heavy steel stuff then you'd take as little as possible obviously you're saying you can take more now so I think it's kind of taken in a pinch of salt because um, all you've actually done is you have people that now the gear is lighter, they're pushing the limits, pushing to the harder routes, um, the bigger stuff that people maybe wouldn't find before. Um, and then you still get some people that will do it with as little as they possibly can, <laughs> just so that they can say, I did it this way. But yeah, I think you know, in a way, you could say that the way the gear is developed, um, you'll be probably a lot safer um with materials that are being used that are potentially a lot stronger but i think for where what you carry there's probably not much in it because people start just pushing their their limits a little bit further so it, it, it's kind of a you end up having better equipment but then you 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 then start to push your limits more so actually you end up doing the more unsafe routes than if you just uh, if it was like previously but then again, uh, I suppose we're an explorationary species. We always like to push our limits and push ourselves out of our comfort zones. Um, so I guess that's what what is enabled, I suppose, with the advent of better technology. Yeah, definitely. Um, <clears throat> I mean, you, yeah, you, you've got more technology. It supports you better and allows you to push those limits. Um, I mean, you consider that things like the use of oxygen in, in um, high altitude mountaineering. I mean, that initially wasn't even thought about. Um, but the minute you can put, use a bottle of oxygen, you can, you can go harder, you can go faster, and you can go higher. Um, so all of these things, they, they, they just help push the evolution of, of the sport and the exploration and, and what you can do. I mean, there's still bits of this planet that we haven't really put feet on. Um, but People are, they're, they're getting close, I think. People are, are really trying to push it now. I suppose you're from a sport and exercise science background, uh, sports therapy and rehabilitation. In that sport and exercise science, you would have had to have done more, uh, some psychology work in that as well. Um, the, the, you know, the, the research that's been done in that, uh, and I suppose we could class that as a, you know, as we've had, uh, an easier time um, because we can communicate better because of uh, digital te technology. Um, we are able to push those limits because we're able to understand human psyche a little bit better. Um, I mean, what's your experience with that from what from what you've studied? People are nuts. That's probably about the best way of putting it. Um, the people that really want to push their limits don't know where their limit is. They don't believe they've got a limit a lot of the time. Um, and they are going to keep pushing until they find that limit. Um, myself, I don't like to be beaten. Um, if, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to, I'm going to go and do it. It might take me six months to complete a route, for example, but I'll, I'll, I'll get it done at some point. Uh, I'll find a way, but you then get other people that, maybe don't understand that mindset if they come from a different side of life and they might sit there and go yeah but why would you bother um whereas you get the other other side of it is why not um and it it as you say the, the research shows that there's big big differences between how people's brains work um and you get a lot of people that are a lot more motivated to push things a lot of people that are a lot happier to just kind of go with oh, yeah but someone else will do that I, yeah, I, I think I think that's a, a super interesting topic, and I'm going to write that down and, and probably look at that for future episodes. But um, you know, so we talked about your your time in the outdoors and, and, and how you've progressed in that, and we talked about the the sort of technology that you've used, and and we've really stepped on um, how you think it's changed as you've grown up. Um, you know. How do you feel? Sort of. Let's let's talk about a bit more digital and um, and you've talked about with your equipment and stuff that you 
you know, you feel safer, I suppose. Um, and certainly with like the clothing and stuff, you can push harder as well because the clothing has got lighter. Um, so how, how do you think that that technology usage has, has affected you as you've grown up or changed, should I say? I've slowly spent more money because um, once you've had the that, that really good bit of kit, you can't go back to that that cheaper bit of kit that you you had before. Not easily, anyway, because um, you know what the good kit, how, how the better, I say better, more expensive, better kit performs. Um, there's a huge difference that um, if you've only ever spent, I don't know, fifty quid on a jacket, um, if you were then to go and spend three hundred pound on a jacket, you, you'd, you'd struggle to go back because you, you'd suddenly know the difference. I mean. You might think that 50 quid in my jacket does everything you need it to do uh, until you've tried something else. Um, myself, I, I, I use a lot of Gore-Tex and a lot of Primaloft. Um, and it, it costs a lot of money, but it's generally worth it. I've, I've never had a piece of kit that I've spent money on that I've been properly disappointed in. Uh, and I think the only time I've looked at a jacket and gone, oh yeah, well that hasn't quite worked. I've then looked at the conditions I put it through and gone, well, I have pushed it harder than what they said it should do. Um, now you, you take a Gore-Tex active jacket for example it's not designed to handle um, a Scottish winter but if you throw it into a Scottish winter um, you, you're going to know about it because it's not mm. it's not cut for it uh, you need your, like, your, your, your thicker heavier layers of <laughs> sort of thing. Um, but yeah it, it's definitely changed um, things have mixed up a little bit yeah it, it's changed quite heavily um, I suppose um, I mean, you, you, all you've got to look at really is down is great. Um, absolutely love down. I've got a lovely down jacket, but you compare it to Primaloft. Um, down, if it gets wet, you lose a lot of your thermal qualities. Uh, whereas Primaloft, it, it'll keep you warmer for longer, even once it's wet. So it's kind of a balancing act there as well, I suppose, um, because you've also got to consider some of your, your better heavy duty stuff is also heavier um, and you've got a balance between whether you want to go hard and fast um, and, and get it done or whether you think it's going to take you a little bit longer and you're willing to take the extra weight because of that. Right. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if that makes sense from things you've done as well. But... Yeah, I, I, I mean, obviously I've, uh, I was a Husky setter uh, and when you're working uh, with dogs, the, the issue is is that you want to wear your heavy down jacket um the last company i was working at we had expedition down jackets and you know you do become accustomed to the cold and uh so you end up um having to do that balance so even if it's minus 10 outside um you're putting the dogs on the line but you're doing it in just your base layers because you're going to sweat and then, and then, and then, as soon as you're about to go on tour, you put your big jacket on, zip it up, put your mittens on, um, and, and and sort of go from there. So, you know, work. Uh, I suppose working in an Arctic environment, you still rely on those those down jackets, but the technology um, for it has has changed immensely because a lot of it was just woolen jumpers, and then and then trying to have a windproof layer. And some people still use uh, reindeer skins. Um, certainly Sami people will still use reindeer skins for insulation when they go out and, and do some herding and um, you know but with the advent of you know Gore-Tex or Primaloft you can work um, outside in thinner layers for, for longer at colder temperatures not that we would recommend that but you know um, you, you certainly do you certainly do get um, accustomed to the cold so you, you can wear less layers um whilst you're working but certainly like merino wall layers uh have, have changed immensely over time as well to provide as much uh, as much insulation as possible whilst also still wicking away the sweat from from your your body basically um so yeah i i definitely have seen a, a change in it but i mean i'm so far out of the climbing that i used to do I really couldn't comment on that. <laughs> but have you seen a difference in your walking boots as well? Ah, oh, 100%. Um, they're lighter, 
they're, well, that's clearly what you're doing, their lights not. Um, even in the last few years, I mean, I've got a really, really nice heavy duty pair of uh, winter boots, for example. Um, two, three years after I've, I've bought those, I haven't had a huge amount of use in reality because they get that much winter work. But um, you compare that to, I don't know, a pair that came out last winter and the pair that came out last winter are a third of the weight, um, but can do absolutely everything that mine can do but there's no i have no need to replace them um still want to because you know lighter is better and it's easier um but even on the on the summer front you've gone from using like leathers all the time um there's now like fabrics that are coated with various other substances that mean that the, the boot is is lighter but it's just as waterproof it's just as warm it's just as strong um, if anything, it might actually be more resistant to to the hammering that you're going to give it on on rocks and things like that. It's scrambling. Um, so yeah, massive, massive differences, and even down to to soles. I mean, obviously, everyone, most people have heard of Vibram soles and like that. So a Vibram sole is a lot stickier than just a random bit of rubber from anywhere. Uh, I don't know what they do to it, but they make it work. Uh, and yeah, so. All of that kit has massively come on leaps and bounds, especially in sort of the last sort of five, 10 years. It's um, massive, massive pushes to improve things. We, we, we see a huge change in, in the outdoor industry. As you say, like last year's model, uh, last year's model is, is three times heavier than the, the one this, this season. And it can still do the same and still have the same thermal properties. It's mind boggling, uh, really, if you think about it. Um, and I guess it'll always reach a certain point where you can't go any further with that. And then, then a new magic material will come out um, that you'll be able to do more with it. Um, you know, going to the more digital side of things, um, and you were saying that you have to do more office work now. Um, but have you seen a marked change um, as, you, as you've grown up with your, well, your ability to use the digital world uh, and sort of talk to us about that. Uh, it's a difficult one because I'm, I'm known for not liking to embrace it. Um, I can do it. Um, mm -hmm. I just don't necessarily like to. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, systems update every day. Um, in the time I've worked where I work, um, we've, we've changed booking and operating systems twice. So because um, each time something someone releases something new, um, it can do more stuff, it can hold more information and it can process it better. Um, the likes of storing the data you need on, on your staff and what they can do with storing it in a way that's secure and only certain people can access it that, that need to, but no one else has, has viewing ability. Um, and things like that really, I mean, it, it changes massively. The ability to put mapping on a computer now um really easily and just scroll through the whole country whereas previously you needed hundreds of paper maps to, to do that um and yeah with the use of gps in that respect as well you click a button it'll tell you where you are um whereas before you'd have to sit there and go oh hang on, i went past this i went past that i must be somewhere kind of here um and, and work it out methodically um you've got a lot of that at the click of a button not to say that you shouldn't always have it backed up by paper because you know paper's not going to go wrong, but um, the electronic side of things does definitely speed things up. Um, we've definitely found that from a, from a search and rescue side of things as well, um, because we we you could carry on a paper map that it's it's raining and you haven't got all your map. You've got to take it out to market. Your map gets wet, um, whereas you've got a, a mapping app on your phone, or whatever. You just tap a button. Um, to, to drop a pin on a map and say, right, this is there, uh, carry on, this is there, carry on, um, and things like that. And it'll, it'll, it'll track you, it'll tell you exactly where you've been, what you've done, um, and things like that as well. So, yeah, it's massive, massive changes in, in technology. Some good, some less good, depending how you look at it. Um, I mean, that, that's, that's brilliant. You start to touch on sort of making search and rescue easier um because you, you don't have to sit there and, and work and work out exactly where you are on an approximation on a, an ordnance survey map um ordnance survey is just for the uk it's not 
anywhere else in the world, is it really? Um, they have their own mapping systems, but um, yeah, I think. So, have you ever heard of what three words as well? Yeah, yeah, you use that fairly frequently. Um, it has mixed reviews, uh, mixed yeah. opinions, and I think I think it depends what you're trying to use it for, really. To be honest with you. Yeah, but I mean, for someone to actually develop a bit of technology or uh, a bit of software that maps the whole world in three meter grids, um, I, well, I dare say it's sort of revolutionary, really, in in the location thing. But obviously, you say there's there's um, mixed reviews on it. Um, what what how how have you used it, and what do you think of it? Um. I'm someone that has has mixed opinions. Um, I, I like it for its ease of use. Um, if I'm planning something in advance, uh, it's great. I think if you're using it in a, in haste, um, there's a chance for mistakes. Um, but there is with with anything. I mean, <clears throat> there's you, you'll see mountain rescue teams are claiming there's been issues where they've been phoned, given a, an address, and it's been three miles away from from where they should be. Um, but whenever you build a system like this, you're going to have a little bit of overlap and a few kind of things like that. I think it's a great system um, and it's got a really good good use. I think it's just how you use it um, and not to be reliant on it. Um, cause that's the big problem is a lot of people are, are relying on it. They're going, oh, I've got this in my pocket, so I'll be okay. Um, which isn't what it's there for. It's there as, a, as an aid to, to help you out, not to solve your problems or bail you out. Is that, is that the dog again? Is it? Oh, the, the, yeah, the dog will the place. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's super interesting because I remember walking up uh, the Monroe just um, down the loft from me, and um, and I spoke to a group of um, a group of 18, 19 year olds who have been using Snapchat maps to uh, to guide themselves trying to get up a up a mountain basically and, and they completely missed the summit and they were asking me whether or not they'd missed the summit and i was like well where did you go and they just blew around the um the basin um and then they pointed to here and i was like yes you definitely missed the summit because <laughs> <laughs> they thought yeah. the summit was on the other the other hill from where it actually is and you sort of like yeah no you, you really missed it but i, I mean us being in an outdoor industry, we would sort of we sort of sit there and like face palm ourselves, thinking, you know, that's a that's not a, a navigating piece of software that you can use. Um, I, I guess that you probably come across that in your search and rescue stuff, um, flip flops and shorts going up hills. And... Uh, not something that we particularly deal with um, from our point of view uh, because of location wise, but it is things that pretty much every time I go to one specific mountain in South Wales, I would almost certainly have to turn somebody around um, or take them back to their car because they've got completely lost, walked the wrong way off the summit and um, they're not prepared for the weather. And I'd say probably nine times out of 10, you got one particular mountain and that happens. Um, whether that's just because I notice them and I pick them up or whether I'm just really unlucky, I don't know, but it seems to be most times I go there. Um, so, you know, this advent of, of the modern age and, and, and modern technology that allows access to all these map, mapping systems and easier navigation and easier pinpointing of your location, you know, I guess you would still rely on a, a paper map because obviously phones will run out of battery. Um, unless it's a waterproof phone you can't take out in the rain because screen stops working. You know, this is all changes to, to I suppose, our society and culture, um, especially with all of the advancements in equipment as well, is that um, I, I guess that there is a level of feeling safer because you've got a, a Gore-Tex jacket uh, that can do 20,000 millimetres hydrostatic head and, and the same with waterproof trousers. Um, how do you think that's sort of changing um, our modern our modern lives and, uh, as we go forward with this? Because obviously, the advancements make it easier for us to do things. Um, 
how do you think it's changing? I think it's great that more people have more access to go out and do things. Um, I think the problem with it is the education on things. Some people rely too much on the new technology without having the, the basic skills to, to back up what they're doing behind them. Um, it's great. You can go out and you can navigate with your phone. You've got uh, OS maps on your phone or whatever, but the minute you run out of that, runs out of battery. Um, one, you've got no way to call for help if something goes wrong. And two, you don't know where you are. Um, I think there's a lot of things that people don't think about that. They kind of go with, oh, well, you know, my battery's got, a, my, my phone's got a 24 hour battery life. Um, but by the time you put in the, the mapping to it, you take out a few hours. You put the cold into it, you take out a few hours. You get the fact that you, you're turning it on and off all the time to check the screen. You, you, you're going to slowly eat away at things. And as I say, I think it's, it's really good that more people have more access um, and easier access. And, and in general, safer access to go out and do these things. But I think that there is potentially a lack of baseline education um, about the, how it can still go wrong. Technology doesn't make it safe. Um, it just helps you to uh, along on that journey. It helps to mitigate the risk of something bad, really, really bad happening. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, when when you started doing um, hill walking and, and stuff, these mapping systems weren't as great. So, you know, and but you still had a phone to rely on that uh, to get you out of a tricky situation if you needed to, uh, I guess. Um, when you started, how, how how was that for you? Like having to really learn because I suppose you'd learned the basics. Yeah, so I, I learned how to read a map as a as a kid, really. I suppose, um, and I've done it ever since. I mean, you touched on it earlier that when we were teenagers, we we carried water with bricks up uh, for a phone. Um, even after I had my first smartphone, as you said a minute ago, it wasn't waterproof, it wasn't drop proof, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think I used to take the sim out and put the sim into a brick when I went climbing because the brick was more likely to survive. Um, so I'd have my, my map, my compass and my brick. Um, the brick basically stayed in your, in your, your pocket or your bag um, in case you needed it. Um, and everything else you did on, on paper and traditional navigation. Um, it's only really in the last kind of four or five years I've even really started to use any form of mapping on a digital device um while i'm out and that's generally just to check that very quickly check i'm on the right path rather than having to get the paper map out every every 10 minutes something like that uh, but in general <clears throat> all big navigation will done manually for, for me if i'm somewhere that, especially if I don't know but somewhere that i do know um i'm probably a bit lazy i probably do rely on a phone a little bit too much um but if it's somewhere new it's always back to to basics and, and I, I guess that's that's how, from, from what you're saying, basically, is it, how it's changing um, us at the moment is that um, it, it, it's a good thing because it, it means that people have easier access to the the outdoors and, and the benefits that the outdoors give, gives people. Um, however, the, the, there is a, a lack of background knowledge if they do get into trouble and if their phone does die or if they drop it off um, drop it off a cliff and manage to get it back and it's broken and they're in trouble um, there's, there's a reliance on technology to uh, give us that ability to, to feel safer and, and it's a, a full sense of security sometimes um, yeah absolutely <clears throat> yeah it's, it's super interesting what you're saying because you know certainly with your your search and rescue background as well is that you know um it it means that you you have an ability to accurately pinpoint where someone is um so it makes it makes life easier whereas in the past you would have had to have your paper map out making sure that you knew which route you're taking and, and work out where you were from there so yeah, what I'm what I'm getting from from the question I ask is how you think it's changing modern day culture and society is is that it's a good thing, but only to an extent where you still need to have the background knowledge if technology fails on. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, it's something I've, I've thought for a, a few years now. Yeah, <laughs> so 
and now you've got it down on paper or not on paper on uh, on a podcast <laughs> yeah that one yeah exactly um brilliantly so um yeah i mean we've covered a lot in that and uh some really really good stuff there i tend to ask at the end of the podcast um just a little question of if money wasn't an issue time wasn't an issue um and you had the opportunity to go and live off the grid for a year uh where would it be and what would you do i don't know i i I'd probably want to go off uh, into Scandinavia and just have a a good good look round to see what I can find and just find somewhere new and interesting. Um, to be honest with you, no, nothing specific, just kind of see what happened. Hmm. So, no, nothing specific. You just you just go off and head into the the, the wilderness and and just be there for a year, basically. Yeah, I think so. And you know, there's a there's a game we developed when I was about eighteen, where you, you sit somewhere and you you look at what looks interesting on the horizon and you go for it, <laughs> um, and you just float around like that. I mean, you, you don't know what it is until you figure it out afterwards. But you point at something and go, "Yeah, let's try that, and see what happens." So that so you you played the game that you developed at eighteen uh, in, yeah, in Scandinavia, so. basically. Yeah. Um, so. Well, how how far up would you go? Go on, give us give us a, a region. Well, I'd like to make it into the Arctic Circle. That's for sure. Um, I don't really, really know. I think I just see how far I could go and how long I could take it for. Fair enough. And would you, I guess that means that you'd be using your bushcraft skills and uh, and then back to basic stuff as well. Yeah, probably absolutely everything I've learned over the last few years. You know, you take some advanced stuff, you take some basic stuff, and you just see what happens. Yeah, nice, nice. Well, uh, thanks very much for that, Dan. Um, much appreciated. I hope you enjoyed it as well. I quite, I quite enjoyed uh, listening to your side of the story. So, yeah, thanks for having me. Very good. No worries. Big thank you for Dan for joining us on the Unplugged debate for this episode. Next episode, we will have Meg Tainter giving her perspective on the Unplugged debate. So, until then, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>